All right, let's go ahead and get started with our time together. I'm grateful for uh, your coming here. Now, you may have had the question, as a few people asked me, what doubt are we talking about? I probably should have uh, clarified exactly what doubt we're dealing with here. But uh, one of the things the Lord has given me the opportunity to do over uh, the years of ministry is to teach in a Bible college setting or a university setting. Uh, and then come here to the seminary. Uh, the time at university, I taught for four years at Maranatha Baptist University in Wisconsin, was an eye-opening experience for me from a number of vantage points, one of which was the number of students who came into Maranatha who uh, did not appear to be converted in the first place. So they came with a testimony of faith, but they d- displayed no evidence of faith at all. Uh, second, in, and in line with that, the number of people who graduated from Maranatha and accordingly graduated from Christianity because they had not really owned that relationship with Christ for their own. And there sometimes comes a period in the life of people like that where they begin to have questions about their faith, doubts, if you would, and uh, they feel like there's no place to express those doubts. Uh, And then there are others who are within the Christian assembly, uh, whether at an institution or not, an educational institution or not, who, because of life circumstances and events, all of a sudden have questions that they've never had before. And they just don't know what to do with them. And I'm afraid that sometimes our churches are the last place they'll ask those questions. Whereas, in fact, those should be the first place that we should be asking those questions. We should be inviting uh, the curious, the questioning, to open up concerning what's happening in their hearts. And yet I think that we so often uh, struggle with that. So uh, what I'd like to do today is to walk through this topic, Christians and doubt. And of course, I, I think it's possible that there are people who begin doubting Christianity simply because... Uh, they don't believe it. They, they, they haven't believed it, and they're just now coming to realize that. Uh, but I think that there are others who truly do believe it, but nevertheless have questions. And so what I'd like to do today is to deal with this topic of doubt, asking first if it's a sin to doubt, and then walking through what doubt is, why doubt might come, what we can do for those who doubt, whether that is ourselves or whether it's those who we minister to. So that's the goal of our presentation today. So I'm not speaking primarily about people who doubt their salvation, but I would say this. If you know someone who's prone to doubt their salvation, you probably know you should probably know that same person is prone to doubt other aspects of their life as well. Uh, there's, there's something about some people who are just questioning individuals, and they have a hard time latching on. And so... Um, If you know someone prone to that, uh, you may want to start building a relationship in such a way that they know that they're open to ask other questions of you. So let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right into this material. Father, I thank you for the opportunity you've given to me to be able to, uh, hopefully, Lord, uh, before you, to be a help to these dear saints who've come to hear uh, these truths. And I pray that as we look into your word, as we look into this topic, that we'd be better prepared to be good servants of yours. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. I'm not sure that I introduced myself, so let me do that. I'm Timothy Miller. I've taught here for six years now. I teach uh, in the New Testament division. But previous to doing that, I had actually done a degree in uh, Christian apologetics. And so this is the defense of the Christian faith. So the topic of doubt or of struggle comes quite naturally to me, partly because it's my training, uh, answering questions. Uh, but part of the reason that I went into that in the, in the first place is that I'm a very naturally inquisitive person. Uh, I doubt everything. <laughs> it just, it is who I am. And if I could turn it off, I would. I can't. And so it just, it's, it's always been that way for me. And I know that there are other believers who are like that as well. And uh, so a, covering a topic like this may help you in your own walk of faith because you say, I believe, but help my unbelief. And we'll talk about that here in just a little bit as, as that is the, actually the cry of a man speaking with the Lord Jesus. So the first, first question I want us to ask is this. Can a true believer doubt Christianity or Maybe putting this slightly different, can a true believer doubt the, the true tenets of Christianity? Can he say, uh, as a genuine believer, I just do not know. Is this true? Have I believed a lie? Uh, what, what is truth? And I think that there are some people who would say, well, that seems to be the exact opposite of faith. Therefore, the person who would say that question, is this really true, evidences by means of that very statement that they are not truly a believer. And I think that that would be a rather premature uh, statement. Uh, we love to think of ourselves as very stable people. Uh, Any time spent in ministry, you'll find that we are very unstable people. Our emotions, our minds, I just, uh, the last a workshop I was in, I thought did a fantastic job walking through how in private sins, people are, are thinking or part of addressing people's private sins or asking simple questions like, how much have you slept? How have you been eating? How are you exercising? Because our minds are, are a part of our bodies, right? And when we think of believers, we can't think of them as totally shielded from the major elements of our world. You're going to have believers in your assembly who are going to be watching the History Channel. And is the History Channel a friend to grace? <laughs> they go and they find that scholar. Right? Who's that scholar? Well, he's the guy who doesn't even think God exists. And so now here's this scholar talking about how, well, all, of course, all the Bible's total junk. And, but he's got PhD before his name. This guy must, must clearly know what he's talking about. And then they begin to hear these things. I, I tell my students, you know, there, there are not too many um, best-selling books on text criticism. But there is one. Do you know who wrote it? Bart Ehrman, who is a total unbeliever. He went to Moody, but he abandoned the faith. And now he writes antagonistically towards the faith. And he's written very popular level books about this. So that the first time you may address text criticism, 
Somebody in your congregation may already know a little bit about text criticism, but from a totally wrong perspective. Because the internet world has opened the opportunity for knowledge. Uh, Do you know how many YouTubers there are whose goal is to capture your people's view so that they can rob them of their faith? And what do you think happens to a young person who truly believes the gospel but begins to hear this sort of thing, which is designed in such a way to be persuasive and pull them in? So I would argue this answer, the answer to this is yes. There are true believers who come to a point where they're saying, is this really true? And uh, often uh, they will need some assistance at that stage to think through these things. And that's what I want to help with today. Um, is it a sin to do so? And I'm going to address this in a little bit. I think it can be, but it doesn't have to be. There are certain circumstances of life that lead us to doubt because we sin. But there are other circumstances of life which uh, have led us to questioning, to thinking about things more deeply than we've ever thought of them before. And it wasn't a product of sin. It just was the natural process of learning new information. So here's the central question I want us to think about in the time that we have. Um, How can we help those who experience doubt? And again, I say whether that is you or whether it is, in fact, uh, somebody else that you're assisting who's walking through these dark times. So first, let's define doubt. What do we mean by doubt? Because the word doubt has a range of meaning, and some of them are more critical than others. And I'm going to suggest that there are really two ways that we can think about this. We can think about doubt and skepticism. And I think those are two different things that can often present themselves similarly. Skepticism says that is not true. I know that is not true. And so therefore, I doubt whether what you say is true. Because I I just, I know it's not true, so therefore I, I doubt that. Whereas I think the type of doubt that we're addressing here, particularly in engaging with people who are among our own congregation, even our own hearts, uh, the doubt more or less says, I'm struggling to see how that's true. I'm struggling right now because I hold to this position. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity who is entirely human. All right, and then I've just taken a philosophy class at a public university. And I'm thinking, like, how does that work? And I'm, I've got a tension in my faith. I've got this belief, but I'm not sure how to organize it so that it all fits in my mind, in my brain, and I'm satisfied, internally satisfied with where I stand. I've become unsettled, and I want to be settled and so I think the, the one who doubts uh, in, in a proper way says, I, I don't know, I don't know, but I know where to look. I want to look, I want to believe. And there's a positive inclination towards belief. And I, so I say here, the skeptic is secured and dogmatic in his unbelief. The doubter is searching for a resolution to his intellectual struggle. 
The Christian in the throes of doubt will give the benefit broadly to the Christian system as he seeks answers to his question. He will, in fact, desire to see what does the scriptures say about this. And this is where I think I see a turning point with many people who begin down this path, but then at some point turn and say, I just don't believe that. I, like, I, I, I don't want to hear what the scriptures say. That's a turning point from, I think, a challenging mindset to a sinful mindset. Now, that's not to say that that individual is not necessarily regenerate. Time will certainly tell that. But they certainly have embraced something that I think is beyond where a Christian ought to be. So here's the question I want us to ask. Why is it that we may come to doubt, come to these intellectual struggles? And I'm going to suggest there are three things that may lead us to this point, lead us or the people in our congregations. The first is a moral issue. Sometimes the root problem is moral. What do I mean by this? We like to think of ourselves, especially in the Western world, as intellectual people. And so the intellect leads the emotions. But I think if we're honest with ourselves and if we listen to uh, most teaching on the subject, we'll find that our emotions often lead to our beliefs. It's the exact opposite direction. Here's a couple of atheists who... I think, reveal a bit of their own worldview here. They, they show more than I think they even intended to show by their statements. Here's Thomas Nagel. He says, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right about my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. So why would Thomas Nagel say this? What do you think? We can be a little interactive here if you like. He doesn't like to be judged. Okay. He doesn't like uh, a judge above him being able to say you can and you can't. He wants to be his own God. And isn't this the nature of humanity? I want to be able to do what I want to do, and I don't want there to be one who stands above me who can say to me, no, yes. Do you think that this may lead some people to begin doubting the existence of God? Well, we'll see that that's, that's true. I mean, Nagel essentially says, look, it's not even on the table. The existence of God isn't even an option in my worldview. Because I don't want the world to be like that. Here's another guy, Mortimer Adler. Uh, now, he later came to theistic belief. I don't know if he became a true believer, but he came to theistic beliefs. He's talking about his earlier life. He says, the reality of God would require a radical change in my way of life. So he's talking about why he didn't embrace theism earlier. It would require a basic alteration in the direction of my day-to-day choices as well as in the ultimate objectives to be sought or hoped for. The simple truth of the matter is that I did not wish to live living up to being a genuinely religious person. So again, he says, here's how I wanted to live. Therefore, this is what I believed. And we so much think it's the exact opposite. 
They believe and therefore they live. But it's not actually the way that humans generally work. People will believe the craziest things if it lets them live the way they want. And in fact, I would argue that that's, that's what atheism is. It, it's a crazy belief. And yet, it affords the greatest freedom because there is nobody. There, there is no accountability before me. And, and this is where uh, Nagel and Adler, I think, get it. Now, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that I think reveals this to be the case. Look with me in Romans chapter 1. We could look at a couple of other places, but this is by far the clearest in relation to this truth. You know the famous passage of Romans chapter 1, but let me draw some attention to how Paul develops his argument. Because you know, he, he's just said the, the gospel... I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And everyone should believe it because the Jews are condemned and the Gentiles are condemned. That's his point in chapters 1 to 2. In chapter 1, he's talking about the Gentiles. And he says this in verse, chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed. That is, it's coming down from heaven against all, God, all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, just, let's just pause there. We're going to read some more. But they suppress the truth by their wickedness. The word suppress here is a really interesting one. It actually has two different definitions in, in the Greek, and you've got to determine which it means. It could mean they hold down the truth. And yet, it's almost like a beach ball you're trying to hold down under the water. It's always exerting pressure up. And when you look away, what happens? The truth is popped back up and you've got to push it back down. But that's what mankind does. He pushes down the truth. In, a, in an almost ironic way, it also means that, the word also means it holds to, holds close to. And I wonder if Paul's using it in an ironic way. They hold it down and yet as they're holding it down, they cannot help but be close to the truth. The truth is there. But what are they trying to do? Because of what they want to do, and we're going to find this whole passage is about morality. They're them living the life the way they want to. What are they doing? They're saying, truth? I don't want it. I don't want truth. So what comes first? Their morality determines their truth. Okay? And, and friends, this, this, is, this is where we're at. Speak your truth. What does that mean? That means determine how you want to live, and then tell everybody that that's just what, you're, that's what it's going to be. Because it's your truth. And we, as well as the whole history of humanity, says, well, you can't do that. It's not the way things work. But that's what man wants. He wants to say, this is my truth. So he pushes down the truth in order to express his own truth. Uh, and they do this by their wickedness. And, of course, Paul goes on to say, of course, what is known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them. So, they know about God. And God doesn't fail. And this is what he did, so they do know about him. Uh, and in fact, it's plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen. Not through some fog, but, but clearly seen. Being... Notice the next word, understood from what has been made 
so that people are without excuse. Paul's point is, everybody knows God. Uh, so, you know, uh, one evangelist wrote a book that said, God doesn't believe in a- atheists. And it's, it's a cute little statement. Uh, there's some truth to it, though, in the sense that th- there is a knowledge of God uh, that all men have. And yet, Paul also says, here's a truth that they know, but they are actively, because of their desire for sin, pushing that truth down. So I don't think an atheist is lying to you when he says, I don't believe in God. Uh, what I do think is that there's a evident truth deeply embedded within that person that he is working and exercising diligently to excise moment by moment. Doesn't want it to be the case. Notice then how Paul goes on. Verse 21, for although they knew God, this just assumes that, in fact, the knowledge of God is there. They didn't glorify him as God nor give thanks to him, but notice this next line, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And I think that the two things here um, go hand in hand. Their intellect is darkened. Their knowledge is actually decreased. But then their hearts are darkened. Their, their mind becomes futile. It becomes less useful for the task in which it was supposed to be, which is to discern truth, because they're denying truth. It's almost like the conscience, they're searing it. But this is with the, with the mind. They're robbing themselves of knowledge. And their hearts become darkened. What does that mean? It means that they pursue things that are worse and worse. It gets darker. And just look, look at the world at large, but you, you can look at individuals who embrace a life of sin. It's, it's a downhill slide. And uh, you embrace one thing and you go on to the next. And I, that's exactly where Paul's going to go with this. So they claim to be wise, but they became fools. Notice down to verse four, 24. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another, exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshipped and served the created things rather than the creator who's praised, forever praised. Amen. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women, inflamed with lust one to another. Men committed shameful acts with other men, received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So let's just follow along with Paul here so far. What's he done? He said they knew God, but they didn't like that knowledge because it constrained their life. So they pushed down that truth. And what did God do? He allowed their minds to be seared of knowledge and their hearts to be darkened so that they desired even worse things. And his first step is they desired uh, sexual lasciviousness. They desired to engage in, uh, in, in things that, that they knew they shouldn't engage in. I mean, our world knows that sexuality ought to be reserved. They know it. Uh, they don't like it, but they know it. And yet they transgress that. And these individuals transgress that. Transgress that. And, and uh, Paul says, and so what does God do? He essentially, and th- this is what he's saying, he's saying the wrath of God is such that God, the, the wrath is revealed from heaven. What does God's wrath look like? We often think God's wrath would look like uh, a thunderbolt shooting straight into somebody's heart and destroying their life. But here's what God's wrath looks like, according to Romans chapter 1. 
Here comes man headed towards sin, and God steps out of the way. That's actually God's wrath. He lets people continue the direction they want to go. He allows their hearts to continue to be darkened. He allows their minds to be continue to be seared of knowledge. And so, what do we find? Do they turn to homosexuality? Now, I don't think Paul mentions homosexuality because it's the height of, uh, of sinfulness or anything like that. But I do think it's this, that he's been talking about what does nature teach us? Nature shows us that God exists. Nature shows us that men and women belong together. Men and men don't. Women and women don't. But they've become so seared that they can't even see that. And it's a noble thing in our world and in the ancient Roman world. It's a noble thing to claim your, uh, your homosexual identity. And Paul says that this is, this is a evidence of, of a seared conscience and a seared mind. People have given themselves over. And then he concludes in verse 28, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. It's, uh, you could translate this, a useless mind. It's become broken. And then what do they do? He, he then lists this huge list of sinful things. And, and the one that I think is most striking there in the middle, he says, and they are inventors of evil. So, um, and I wish we had time to develop this, but, you know, uh, the point is that sin never satisfies. It's not designed to satisfy. It can't satisfy. So you've got to seek something more. And you're always pursuing and never finding. And then, of course, he ends it. They know that God's righteous decree, verse 32, that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very, very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And if you dare not approve of those who practice them, then you're the enemy. All right, so that's, that's, that's where we are in this world. But what, what I see here in Romans chapter 1 is this point, though. They hear individuals who desire some sort of uh, morality, some, something that they've been denied by means of God's word. And accordingly, they begin to doubt God's word. And I've seen this numerous times in the life of many of my previous uh, college students who, um, you know, if you ask, all right, so it appears that you're no longer a believer. What, you know, what, what happened? And uh, they won't pinpoint exactly that, but often it does have to do with their sexual preference. It's a huge one. And they say, uh, you know, they, they began to go down a road, and then there was conflict now between what they wanted and what the Scripture said. And they had to make a choice. And they made the wrong choice. So my whole point here is to simply mention that one of the reasons we could doubt is actually moral. Doubt can be caused by a desire to sin. I want to do this. God's word doesn't allow me to do it. So maybe God's word's not right. Because God wouldn't have made me this way with these desires if I couldn't fulfill them. Because, you know, whatever else you want to say, I mean, doubt can be caused by a desire to sin. Second, doubt can also be the product of sin. I, th I truly believe this as well, that uh, those who are engaged in sin and begin to struggle over the intellectual side of things, I ask them, you know, how's your walk with the Lord? <laughs> you know, have you been in his word? Have you been praying to him? Uh, often, 
It's a product of sin. So we've walked through Romans 1. So the first reason someone might doubt is uh, a moral issue. The second is an emotional issue. Emotional. So, sometimes people come and they say, I, I, ju- I don't know about my belief in God. And you say, okay, well, well, tell me about what's going on. And what you'll discover is that they have this huge emotional issue going on in their life right then. And they're just struggling. Their parent just died. Their child just passed away. Something tragic has just taken place. And now as they think about their relationship with God, they're asking the question, if God exists, how could he allow this to take place? And I know that time does not heal all wounds, but I have found that many people who are in that situation, as they grieve and as they spend time considering that, Uh, back away from that ledge, what they need to hear in such a situation, though, is the truth of God's word, that he does love, that he does care. Going back to Romans chapter 8, did the Lord Jesus come to die for your sins? And if he's done that, can you doubt his love for you? But emotional situations obviously cause the quaking of people's faith and... uh, and we, we need to be prepared for this. So sometimes the root problem is, in fact, emotional. And we need to address this because it's different than moral, right? And you have to have a different answer to it. The third reason could simply be intellectual. I remember a popular evangelist talking about how he was at a college setting, and he was doing a question and answer sec- session with the, with the young people or the college people there. And as he was doing that, somebody came up to one of the microphones and said, all right, I've got a question for you. You say that God created the world, but who created God? And the guy's like, oh, come on. All right, this guy's just, just playing with me. So he provides an answer that's biblically based. And the guy gets with him afterwards and just says, hey, thank you for that. I was like, I just, I didn't know how to answer that, but I've wanted to put my faith in Christ and I just didn't, like, I didn't know a good answer to that. Thank you for that. And the guy became a believer. (laughs) And, 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 you know, anytime I hear someone ask that question, I I think they're asking it in bad faith, right? And I think that's exactly what this apologist thought. But you know, some of these things that, some of these questions you've heard a hundred times, your young people have never thought of. And they're sitting there thinking, boy, that's a great question. How do I answer that? What, what do I need to do? And so uh, sometimes the root problem is really intellectual. You're, you're dealing with uh, individuals who, who are learning new information. I mean, if you have a college student in your, in your youth group that's come from your youth group and they're going to college and they go to the local university, they probably have to take a philosophy course. And there's about a 50% chance they're going to get a philosophy professor who is entirely antagonistic towards Christianity. I really mean that, about 50%. <laughs> um, out of all, by the way, it is quite fascinating, by, out of all of the fields that you find uh, 
you know, in terms of where true believers are in, in, uh, in schools, philosophy is the, the number one, that uh, there are actually genuine believers in there. But there are a lot of people who go into philosophy because they, you know, they wax eloquent and uh, they, they've got all the answers and they're intellectually prideful. Uh, I can't tell you the number of books I've, I've looked at where when they walk through the, um, the logical fallacies, so how to make a wrong type of argument, guess what the uh, argument is all, almost always against? It's always against religion and Christianity um, because there's antagonism towards Christianity by many of these. And so if you've got a young person, they're going to college, there's a, there's a chance that they're going to be sitting there in a philosophy course in which that professor is going to desire to deconstruct their faith. I went to the University of Michigan uh, Flint campus. <clears throat> And, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you kind of get, it, you know, if you get the degree, though, actually, it, uh, it, it just says University of Michigan. But in any case, uh, so I, I had gone there for a little bit, and I could remember uh, one class, uh, actually, this was at Oakland University, I switched. So one, one I'll, I'll talk about the University of Michigan one. Uh, one class it was a psychology class, and the professor had everybody get up, and he said, all right, if you think that a man and woman should only have sexual relations when they're married, go to that side of the room. Everybody else go to that side of the room. It's like, all right, well, here we go. <laughs> uh, not, not many went to that side of the room, all right? Uh, I had another uh, class. This was a health psychology class. All right. What a waste of time uh, <laughs> for, for me at that stage in, in my life. Right? I'm not saying a health psychology class couldn't be helpful. But, um, but he said, all right, so how many of you believe that there's going to be eternal judgment and that since I don't believe in, in God that I'm going to go there? Please raise your hand. And me and one other person raised their hand. I got a C minus in that class. You know why? Because I raised my hand. I know that that's the reason why. Um, do you think that your young people are going to experience hostility of their faith when they go there and hear arguments against their Christian belief? Absolutely. There are, there are people who, who that's their whole goal. And, and they're going to be presented with arguments they've never heard before because generally we don't really talk about those sorts of things in church. I mean, we want to we address what the scriptures say and that sort of thing. Um, and so don't be surprised when you're... A young person comes back and says, what do, what do I do with this? Okay, so I've given you three reasons people might doubt. Uh, let's, let's address this then, and, and we're going to get to how to address each of those kinds in just a moment. Let's think about this for a moment. Are there doubters in Scripture? Yes. Can you think of a couple? One I mentioned earlier, right, so I'll, I'll start with him. Here is Mark 9, 21 to 24. Jesus has been healing people. A centurion comes to Jesus, and he says, my daughter's sick. And if, if you can, you can heal my daughter. And Jesus says, if you can. He says, well, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And there are people who need to hear this verse <laughs> because they're sitting there 
and, and, and there's an intellectual struggle going on, and they're wondering if they believe. And they need to know that there are people who can say, I do believe, <laughs> and I need help right now with my unbelief, right? So I feel the, the stress, the, the pressure in my mind that I love the Lord Jesus Christ, but here's this piece of information. Here's this emotional situation I'm going through. Maybe even here's this sin that I've, that I've embraced and is distancing me from the Savior. And I do believe. Help my unbelief. So for those who would deny that, in fact, you can have intellectual struggle about Christianity while, in fact, believing, I think this man is an example because Jesus goes on to, in fact, heal him heal his daughter because he did believe. Of course, we know Doubting Thomas. I really, I really feel bad for Doubting Thomas. You know, I mean, like he's not there at that one meeting when all the other doubting people got to see Jesus. And then he gets the name Doubting Thomas, right? I think the only one more upset in heaven is Zacchaeus. Uh, as he hears all the kids singing about the wee little man. <laughs> Wee little man. I'm five foot. All right. In any case, (laughs) here's Doubting Thomas. He says, unless I see, and I put my fingers in there. So Jesus comes a week later and he stands among them. He says, peace be with you. He says to Thomas, put your finger in. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And so here we see a man in the throes of doubt. And is it surprising? He's gone through a couple of things. One, the intellectual struggle to say he died and he rose again. Like I saw him on the cross, like that one is raised. How do I believe that? But then the emotion, right? You've just spent three years following this guy. And he just died, and you just come to terms with that. <laughs> and everybody's saying he's alive, and, and he's, he wants to believe, but... And so the Lord shows himself, and Thomas does believe. All the disciples doubted, by the way. And God was faithful to them. Um, here's the one that's most interesting to me, though. John the Baptist. We don't tend to think of him on this side of things, but if, as we look at the book of Matthew, we see this. I start here with John 1, though. Because you remember, John the Baptist knows who Jesus is. Partly because his, he's actually his cousin, right? So I'm sure he's heard stories his whole life. He knows who Jesus is. He sees him and he comes. He says, I'm, I can't baptize you. He ends up baptizing him. And then he sees, he, this is John's testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. All right. If he had any doubts, I got a feeling that resolved them. Like this is this is the Messiah, right? The dove came down. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So clearly, a guy like this, so secure in his faith, could never doubt, right? Here we find John a little bit later, Matthew eleven, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, "Are you the one who's to come?" Or should we expect someone else? All of a sudden, the guy who 
so boldly proclaimed the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who sees a miraculous work such that it's confirmatory that this is in fact who it is. Here he is. So why is John now asking this question? Who was in prison, right? And, and, and maybe he knows. Maybe he's heard that uh, what's coming on the platter next is not the next meal, right? Uh, maybe, maybe he's lost hope as he sits in prison. And, and I tend to think it's this too, that John the Baptist, like all of the rest of the disciples, isn't privileged to fully understand yet what the kingdom's going to look like. So what did he expect? Yeah, he expected Jesus like, you're the Messiah, all right? I came to prepare the way for the Messiah. Like, I'm not supposed to be sitting here. <laughs> this isn't supposed to be happening like this. And yet, here he languishes in prison, and he doesn't know what to do with it. And he's just saying, maybe, maybe he's not. What, what I love about this passage, though, is how it continues. Because here's what Jesus does. He quotes Isaiah. He says, here's what, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to John. And I want you to tell him what you've seen. You've seen me make the blind see, the lame walk. And, and, and Jesus quotes all of the things that Isaiah says, with one exception, by the way. One of the things that Isaiah said is he's going to set the prisoners free. <laughs> Jesus doesn't quote that part. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but Jesus knows that that's sufficient for John. I think that's the honorable answer because he doesn't say, hey, go back there and tell that, John. How dare you? Like, you shouldn't be in this stage. No, you're too mature. You're, you can't be doubting. How dare you? Instead, what does he do? He responds with Scripture. And in fact, then he goes on to say, by the way, crowds, let me just tell you, there's no greater disciple than John prior to the coming kingdom, all right, or prior to at least the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. So Jesus does not criticize John the Baptist. And so if we, if our immediate response to someone who comes to us and says, I don't know, is criticism, then I think we've gone the wrong way. So what do we do uh, when we're dealing with doubt, whether that is in relation to ourselves or in relation to the people that we know? Well, the first thing I think we need to do is to determine the source. Uh, good counseling says that when somebody asks you a question, what should you do? Ask a question. Uh, what are we prone to do? Well, I've got a three-point sermon on that. <laughs> Be prepared, right? And, and we just wax eloquent. And yet we don't even know what just happened. We don't know what we're addressing. You see, because if we come to somebody who's dealing with an emotional problem and deal with it as a moral problem, we've failed. If we've got someone who's dealing with an intellectual problem and we're dealing with like as an emotional problem, we failed. So the first thing we have to know is, why is it that you're struggling this way? So somebody comes and says, I just don't know if Christianity's true. The first thing I would say is, how long have you been thinking this? When did it start? 
Can you pinpoint anything that, that started making you think this way? Did you watch something? Did you hear something? Did you read something? Um, how's your relationship with the Lord? I'm not even going to address this issue for a while because I need to know how they got here. And then once we get to know how they got there, then you can begin to say, oh, okay, so your grandma just died and you're really struggling with this because she, she raised you and um, you're, you're questioning the Lord. Let's, let's turn to the book of Job. Or, you know, I mean, we, we could take him to scripture at that point and talk, talk through what suffering looks like. Um, if it's a moral problem, then we can begin to say, look, let's look at Romans chapter 1 together. Because I think maybe part of the reason you're doubting is because this is what you want to believe. And the question we've got to ask is, what's true? Um, and if it's an intellectual problem, well then, I'm prepared for that. <laughs> right? I mean, that, that's at least the thing the seminary, I hear the phrase all the time, well, seminary didn't prepare me for this. Well, we prepared people for the intellectual side of things, all right? <laughs> <clears throat> and then you can wax eloquent with the sermon, right? Because they, they're actually looking for information, and, and that's, that's a beautiful thing. Now, of course, these aren't all disconnected from each other, and it's not like you can pinpoint and say, okay, this one's a moral issue, this one's a new one. I mean, they're, they're going to merge into each other, but there's going uh, to be highlights that you need to address. Second thing we need to do, seriously consider the alternative. Well, what do I mean by this? Well, I think a lot of times people who begin to doubt Christianity or begin to think in other categories have not truly considered the other side. So they'll say, well, you know, I mean, this whole Trinitarian thing, I don't know how to deal with that. Um, you know, that seems like an irreconcilable difference. And so I want to embrace something else. Or, or they'll say something like, well, Christianity, I, I don't like the morality of Christianity um, because... And then they'll, they'll express something. It's not as welcoming as I think, I think uh, we should, that, that true humanity should be. And my argument is that we need to consider the alternative. Okay, so let's imagine that you're going to drop Christianity. What are you going to take in its place? Well, I'm, I'm just going to become an atheist. Okay, so it, let, let's, let's imagine that's true for a moment. Why do you care? about morality at all. Oh, well, well, because we should. All right, but on that worldview, why does it matter? Uh, I, I was just watching a, uh, something recently that was trying to argue for how though despite the entirety of the world is meaningless, we can make our own meaning. <laughs> and I thought, no, if it's meaningless, it's meaningless. You can't make your own meaning. But that's, I mean, so, so here's the thing. Any worldview somebody wants to jump ship to, right? So, so they're saying, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here. I've been on this ship for a while, and I, I just see so many holes and problems in it. It's going to sink. So I'm going to jump ship, and I'm going to say, okay, so which ship are you jumping to? Let's, before you do that, let's at least consider that one. And I think most people just haven't. You just think, well, well, maybe Christianity isn't true. And then, then you haven't really thought about the opposite side of things. Um, because I, I admit that there are some difficult things that God has called us to embrace within this walk. He hasn't explained uh, his Trinitarian nature to a degree that any philosopher would be able to say, okay, checkbox, got it. 
I don't know how to explain it, but of course, I actually think the Christian worldview gives reason for that to be the way it is. That is, if in fact, God was such that I fully understood him, then I really don't think he's the God that scripture talks about. He's greater than this world. And if I fully understood him, that would actually be a problem. So yes, I've got challenges and issues that I can't fully intellectually satisfy myself. But there's no worldview that doesn't. And in fact, I think Christianity is the most satisfactory. So before you jump ship, think about the other ship. All right. Uh, Third, evaluate your information consumption. I know this is this is the old fundy uh, Tim Miller coming out here. Um, you know, watch what you wa- watch, or be careful what you watch, and that sort of thing. But it's a, this isn't old fundamentalist stuff. This is true stuff. You ought to care about what you put in your heart, in your mind. It, it directs how you think. This is why we always say, engage with Scripture, hide Scripture in your heart. Why? So that you might not sin against God. But if you're hiding the things of this world in your heart, are you surprised then that you go the way of the world? And so what are you looking at? What are you reading? What are you watching on YouTube? I don't think it's healthy for believers to be daily consuming atheistic material on the Internet. I just don't think that's healthy. And I think the more incipient danger is uh, just imbibing the worldview of our world because you consume so much of our world's media. No story is ever told without a worldview. No story is ever told without a worldview. And while the worldview might not be totally out there, it's in there, and it's being communicated. How else do we deal with doubt? Well, fourth, speak to a mature believer. Speak to a mature believer. That is, find somebody who's walked the faith for a while and say, hey, can you help me with this? I'm walking through this. And, and, and I trust that if it's a mature believer, he's going to say, yeah, I would love to. You know, there was a time when I was walking through this. I mean, I, mean, I think most Christians, remember hearing about uh, as a, a presenter at a, at a big pastor's conference who said, who asked the, the crowd, um, would you raise your hand if at some point in your life you have had major doubts concerning your faith? And they said when they looked around, almost every one of those pastors had their hand up. Like, like that they just walked through at least one phase of life where they just, that they struggled through, through, uh, you know, it do, is what I believe true. Um, and so speak to a mature believer who's walked through these halls before. Say, what, what do I do? How, how do I think through this? And I think from our perspective, be the mature believer that when someone comes to you, oh, well, for two things. One, when someone comes to you, you're like Jesus to John the Baptist. But second that you open yourself to such conversations. If you know that your young person from, from your church is going to be going to a public university, maybe you just say, hey, can we have lunch sometime? Hey, can, what's going on in school? How, how are things going? 
Do you have any questions? Because I'd love to talk to you about these sorts of things. Open the door. Maybe they don't want to go through the door. But open the door. Because maybe they've been longing to ask questions, but they just don't feel like they can talk to you. Let them know they can. Be that mature believer. Uh, Number five, seek the Lord in prayer and worship. And uh, if you have your Bibles there, turn to Psalm 73 with me. This is my favorite psalm. Uh, You likely know the psalm. Psalm of Asaph. Asaph starts this way, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who have a pure heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For here's his cause. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They don't seem to have struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. They're callous hearts. Um, And he says this in verse 11. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. But surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Here's what the the psalmist says. He says, look, I almost fell away. Why? Because I looked at the, the wicked and the arrogant, and they seemed to have the life. Like they had it all. All the things I wanted, they had. And here I am, and I've washed my hands in innocence. And yet, what do I see? I see afflictions every day. I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishment. I'm not like them. But I've done the right things. They've done the wrong things. They're benefited. They're blessed. I'm not. So he says this in verse 15, If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. What does that passage mean? I actually think he, he's talking in his official capacity as a, as a psalmist. And he says, And if I had made this known to other people, I think it would have damaged the congregation. I don't think it's healthy for a pastor who maybe is struggling at some point to say, hey guys, just let me share with you all this. But he does need friends to go to, right? But he says, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't express that like that. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. So he's saying, I'm, I'm casting this around in my mind, but I can't put it together. Why would God do this? Verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. So let's consider that. Then I entered the sanctuary of God. The ancient Israelites would come to the temple in order to meet with God. This was the place of God's presence. I would argue today, uh, as Jesus said to the woman at the well, no longer do people need to go to a certain place or even pray in a certain direction to meet with me. They worship me in spirit. Our access to the Father need not be in a place. It's, it's with the Lord himself. And so where does the psalmist take his intellectual struggle, his emotional struggle? Where does he take it? He takes it straight to the Lord. I entered into your presence, and then here's what he says. Then understood I their final destination. Verse 18, you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. I think, I think his point is that their very prosperity 
leads to their destruction. That since they have no toils in life, since they're not pausing to consider the direction of their life, they go headlong in the direction they think they ought to be going, in the direction that's worked for them. And in fact, that is their undoing. But he he makes a comparison, though, because he says this in um, verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and arrogant. I was as a beast, a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Let's connect that back to the first part of this passage. What did he say? I almost slipped. Why didn't he? Because God, you are always with me and you hold my right hand. And here's my hope. When somebody comes to me and says, I just don't know if I truly believe this anymore. I know that if they are truly God's child, he holds them by their right hand. And ultimately they will say as him, during this time I was grieved, I was embittered. And in some ways, that led to a senselessness and ignorance before you. And yet, as I came to your presence, Lord, you resolved the difficulty of my heart. So he says at the end, whom have I in heaven but you? <laughs> and earth is nothing, has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful, but as for me, it's good to be near to God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So I hope that we see as we look through this passage that there's hope and that hope is coming before the Lord. So I I tend to think anyone who comes to me and, and is struggling with their doubt issues, if they're still willing to listen to the scriptures, they're willing to go to him in prayer, that there is great hope that that these intellectual struggles can be resolved and they can, like Asaph, come back into a hearty, great relationship with the Lord such that they say, I want you more than anything else in this world. All right, so friends, in your ministry, you undoubtedly will at some point deal with the doubting Christian. How do you respond? I hope that immediately you respond with love and kindness. And then you just determine, like, ask questions. Like, how did you get here? Why are we here? And then apply the scriptures, because the scriptures give hope. There are people who can say, I believe, help my unbelief. So let them know that just because they're struggling right now doesn't mean that God God has rejected them. There are people who are on solid footing and yet because of emotional and intellectual struggles like John the Baptist, they just didn't know what to do. And they needed a reminder of what the scriptures say. There are people like Asaph who are leaders among God's people who begin to say, I don't know what to do with this fact. And they come before the Lord and the Lord is gracious and kind and upholds them by their right hand. And what a glorious thing. We serve a glorious God.